Friday. Raven Sable, slim and bearded and dressed all in black, sat in the back of his slimline black limousine, talking on his slimline black telephone to his West Coast base. How's it going? he asked. Looking good, chief, said his marketing head. I'm doing breakfast with the buyers from all the leading supermarket chains tomorrow. No problem. We'll have meals in all the stores this time next month. Good work, Nick. No problem. No problem. It's knowing you're behind us, Rave. You give great leadership, guy. Works for me every time. Thank you, said Sable, and he broke the connection. He was particularly proud of meals. The Nutrition Corporation had started small 11 years ago. A small team of food scientists, a huge team of marketing and public relations personnel, and a neat logo. Two years of nutrition investment and research had produced Chow. Chow contained spun, plaited, and woven protein molecules, capped and coded, carefully designed to be ignored by even the most ravenous digestive tract enzymes, no-cal sweeteners, mineral oils replacing vegetable oils, fibrous materials, colorings, and flavorings. The end result was a foodstuff almost indistinguishable from any other except for two things. Firstly, the price, which was slightly higher, and secondly, the nutritional content, which was roughly equivalent to that of a Sony Walkman. It didn't matter how much you ate, you lost weight. Footnote. And hair. And skin tone. And, if you ate enough of it long enough, vital signs. Fat people had bought it. Thin people who didn't want to get fat had bought it. Chow was the ultimate diet food, carefully spun, woven, textured, and pounded to imitate anything from potatoes to venison, although the chicken sold best. Sable sat back and watched the money roll in. He watched Chow gradually fill the ecological niche that used to be filled by the old, untrademarked food. He followed Chow with snacks, junk food made from real junk. Meals was Sable's latest brainwave. Meals was chow with added sugar and fat. The theory was that if you ate enough meals, you would A, get very fat, and B, die of malnutrition. The paradox delighted Sable. Meals were currently being tested all over America. Pizza meals, fish meals, Szechuan meals, macrobiotic rice meals, even hamburger meals. Sable's limousine was parked in the lot of a Des Moines, Iowa burger lord, a fast food franchise wholly owned by his organization. It was here they'd been piloting hamburger meals for the last six months. He wanted to see what kind of results they'd been getting. He leaned forward, tapped the chauffeur's glass partition. The chauffeur pressed a switch, and it slid open. Sir, I'm going to take a look at our operation, Marlin. I'll be ten minutes, then back to L.A. Sir. Sable sauntered into the Burger Lord. It was exactly like every other Burger Lord in America. Footnote. But not like every other Burger Lord across the world. German Burger Lords, for example, sold lager instead of root beer, while English Burger Lords managed to take any American fast food virtues, the speed with which your food was delivered, for example, and carefully remove them. Your food arrived after half an hour at room temperature, and it was only because of the strip of warm lettuce between them that you could distinguish the burger from the bun. The Burger Lord Pathfinder salesman had been shot 25 minutes after setting foot in France. McLordy the Clown danced in the kiddie corner. The serving staff had identical gleaming smiles that never reached their eyes. 
and behind the counter, a chubby, middle-aged man in a Burger Lord uniform slapped burgers onto the griddle, whistling softly, happy in his work. Sable went up to the counter. "'Hello, my name is Marie,' said the girl behind the counter. "'How can I help you?' "'A double blaster thunder biggin, extra fries, hold the mustard,' he said. "'Anything to drink?' "'A special thick whippy choco banana shake.' She pressed the little pictogram squares on her till. Literacy was no longer a requirement for employment in those restaurants. Smiling was. Then she turned to the chubby man behind the counter. "'DBTBEF hold mustard,' she said. "'Chalk shake.' Uh huh, crooned the cook. He sorted the food into little paper containers, pausing only to brush the graying cowlick from his eyes. "'Here you are,' he said. She took them without looking at him, and he returned cheerfully to his griddle, singing quietly. "'Love me tender, love me long, never let me go.'" The man's humming, Sable noted, clashed with the Burger Lord background music, a tinny tape loop of the Burger Lord commercial jingle, and he made a mental note to have him fired. "'Hello, my name is Marie,' gave Sable his meal and told him to have a nice day. He found a small plastic table, sat down in the plastic seat, and examined his food. Artificial bread roll, artificial burger, fries that had never even seen potatoes, foodless sauces, even, and Sable was especially pleased with this, an artificial slice of dill pickle. He didn't bother to examine his milkshake. It had no actual food content, but then again, neither did those sold by any of his rivals. All around him, people were eating their unfood with, if not actual evidence of enjoyment, then with no more actual disgust than was to be found in burger chains all over the planet. He stood up, took his tray over to the please dispose of your refuse with care receptacle, and dumped the whole thing. If you had told him that there were children starving in Africa, he would have been flattered that you'd noticed. There was a tug at his sleeve. Partly name a sable, asked a small, bespectacled man in an International Express cap, holding a brown paper parcel. Sable nodded. Thought it was you. Looked around, thought tall gent with a beard, nice suit, can't be that many of them here. Package for you, sir. Sable signed for it. His real name. One word, six letters. Sounds like examine. Thank you kindly, sir, said the delivery man. He paused. Here, he said. That bloke behind the counter. Does he remind you of anyone? No said Sable. He gave the man a tip, five dollars, and opened the package. In it was a small pair of brass scales. Sable smiled. It was a slim smile and was gone almost instantly. About time, he said. He thrust the scales into his pocket, unheeding of the damage being done to the sleek line of his black suit, and went back to the limo. Back to the office? asked the chauffeur. The airport, said Sable, and call ahead. I want a ticket to England. Yes, sir. Return ticket to England. Sable fingered the scales in his pocket. Make that a single, he said. I'll be making my own way back. Oh, and call the office for me. Cancel all appointments. How long for, sir? The foreseeable future. And in the burger lord, behind the counter, the stout man with the cowlick slid another half-dozen burgers onto the grill. He was the happiest man in the whole world, and he was singing very softly. You ain't never caught a rabbit, he hummed to himself, and you ain't no friend of mine. The them listened with interest. There was a light drizzle, which was barely kept at bay by the old iron sheets and frayed bits of lino that roofed their den in the quarry, and they always looked to Adam to think up things to do when it was raining. 
They weren't disappointed. Adam's eyes were agleam with the joy of knowledge. It had been 3 a.m. before he'd gone to sleep under a pile of new aquariums. And then there was this man called Charles Fort, he said. He could make it rain fish and frogs and stuff. Huh, said Pepper. I bet. Alive frogs? Oh yes, said Adam, warming to his subject, hopping around and croaking and everything. People paid him money to go away in the end, and... and... He racked his brains for something that would satisfy his audience. He'd done for Adam a lot of reading in one go. And he sailed off in the Mary Celeste and founded the Bermuda Triangle. It's a Bermuda, he added helpfully. No, he couldn't have done that, said Wensley Dale sternly, because I've read about the Mary Celeste and there was no one on it. It's famous for having no one on it. They found it floating around all by itself with no one on it. I didn't say he was on it when they found it, did I? said Adam scathingly. Of course he wasn't on it, because of the UFOs landing and taking him off. I thought everyone knew about that. The them relaxed a bit. They were on firmer ground with UFOs. They weren't entirely certain about New Age UFOs, though. They'd listened politely to Adam on the subject, but somehow modern UFOs lacked punch. If I was an alien, said Pepper, voicing the opinion of them all, I wouldn't go round telling people all about mystic cosmic harmony. I'd say, her voice became hoarse and nasal, like someone hampered by an evil black mask, This is a laser blaster, so do what you're told, rebel swine. They all nodded. A favourite game in the quarry had been based on a highly successful film series with lasers, robots, and a princess who wore her hair like a pair of stereo headphones. It had been agreed without a word being said that if anyone was going to play the part of any stupid princesses, it wasn't going to be Pepper. But the game normally ended in a fight to be the one who was allowed to wear the coal scuttle and blow up planets. Adam was best at it. When he was the villain, he really sounded as if he could blow up the world. The them were, anyway, temperamentally on the side of planet destroyers, provided they could be allowed to rescue princesses at the same time. I expect that's what they used to do, said Adam, but now it's different. They all have this bright blue light around them and go around doing good. Sort of galactic policemen, going around telling everyone to live in universal harmony and stuff. There was a moment's silence while they pondered this waste of perfectly good UFOs. What I've always wondered, said Brian, is why they call them UFOs when they know they're flying saucers. I mean, they're identified flying objects then. It's because the government hushes it all up, said Adam. Millions of flying saucers land in all the time and the government keeps hushing it up. Why, said Wensleydale. Adam hesitated. His reading hadn't provided a quick explanation for this. New Aquarian just took it as the foundation of belief, both of itself and its readers, that the government hushed everything up. Because they're the government, said Adam simply. That's what governments do. They've got this great big building in London full of books of all the things they've hushed up. When the Prime Minister gets into work in the morning, the first thing he does is go through the big list of everything that's happened in the night and put this big red stamp on them. I bet he has a cup of tea first, and then reads the paper, said Wensley Dale, who had, on one memorable occasion during the holidays, gone unexpectedly into his father's office, where he had formed certain impressions, and talks about what was on TV last night. Well, all right, but after that, he gets out the book in the big stamp. Which says, hush it up, said Pepper. It says, top secret, said Adam, resenting this attempt at bipartisan creativity. It's like nuclear power stations. They keep blowing up all the time, but no one ever finds out because the government hushes it up. They don't keep blowing up all the time, said Wensleydale severely. My father says they're dead safe and mean we don't have to live in a greenhouse. 
Anyway, there's a big picture of one in my comic, and it doesn't say anything about it blowing up. Footnote. Wensleydale's alleged comic was a 94-week part work called Wonders of Nature and Science. He had every single one so far, and had asked for a set of binders for his birthday. Brian's weekly reading was anything with a lot of exclamation marks in the title, like whiz or clang. So was Peppers, although even under the most refined of tortures, she still wouldn't admit to the fact that she also bought Just Seventeen under plain covers. Adam didn't read any comics at all. They never lived up to the kind of things he could do in his head. Yes, said Brian, but you lent me that comic afterwards, and I know what type of picture it was. Wensleydale hesitated, and then said, in a voice heavy with badly tried patience, Brian, just because it says exploded diagram, there was the usual brief scuffle. Look, said Adam severely, do you want me to tell you about the Aquarium Age or not? The fight, never very serious amongst the siblinghood of the them, subsided. Right, said Adam. He scratched his head. Now you've made me forget where I've got to, he complained. Flying saucers, said Brian. Right, right. Well, if you do see a flying UFO, these government men come and tell you off, said Adam, getting back into his stride, in a big black car. It happens all the time in America. The them nodded sagely. Of this, at least, they had no doubt. America was, to them, the place that good people went to when they died. They were prepared to believe that just about anything could happen in America. Probably causes traffic jams, said Adam. All these men in black cars going about telling people off for seeing UFOs. They tell you that if you go on seeing them, you'll have a nasty accident. Probably get run over by a big black car, said Brian, picking at a scab on a dirty knee. He brightened up. Do you know, he said, my cousin said that in America there's shops that sell 39 different flavors of ice cream. This even silenced Adam briefly. There aren't 39 flavors of ice cream, said Pepper. There aren't 39 flavors in the whole world. There could be if you mix them up, said Wensleydale, blinking owlishly. You know, strawberry and chocolate. Chocolate and vanilla. He sought for more English flavors. Strawberry and vanilla and chocolate, he added lamely. And then there's Atlantis, said Adam loudly. He had their interest there. They enjoyed Atlantis. Cities that sank under the sea were right up the Them's street. They listened intently to a jumbled account of pyramids, weird priesthoods, and ancient secrets. Did it just happen sudden or slowly, said Brian. Sort of sudden and slowly, said Adam, because a lot of them got away in boats to all the other countries and taught them how to do maths and English and history and stuff. Don't see what's so great about that, said Pepper. Could have been good fun when it was sinking, said Brian, wistfully, recalling the one occasion when Lower Tadfield had been flooded. People delivering the milk and newspapers by boat and no one having to go to school. If I was an Atlantisan, I'd have stayed, said Wensleydale. This was greeted with disdainful laughter, but he pressed on. You just have to wear a diver's helmet, that's all, and nail all the windows shut and fill the houses with air. It would be great. Adam greeted this with the chilly stare he reserved for any of the them who came up with an idea he really wished he'd thought of first. They could have done, he conceded somewhat weakly, after they'd sent all the teachers off in the boats. Maybe everyone else stayed on when it went down. You wouldn't have to wash, said Brian, whose parents forced him to wash a great deal more than he thought could possibly be healthy. Not that it did any good. There was something basically ground in about Brian. Because everything would stay clean. And and you could grow seaweed and stuff in the garden and shoot sharks and have pet octopuses and stuff. And there wouldn't be any schools and stuff because they'd have got rid of all the teachers. 
They could still be down there now, said Peppa. They thought about the Atlanteans, clad in flowing mystic robes and goldfish bowls, enjoying themselves deep under the choppy waters of the ocean. Huh, said Peppa, summing up their feelings. What shall we do now, said Brian? It's brightened up a bit. In the end, they played Charles Fort Discovering Things. This consisted of one of them walking around with the ancient remains of an umbrella, while the others treated him to a rain of frogs, or rather, frog. They could only find one in the pond. It was an elderly frog who knew the them of old, and tolerated their interest as the price it paid for a pond otherwise free of moorhens and pike. It put up with things good-naturedly for a while, before hopping off to a secret and so far undiscovered hideout in an old drainpipe. Then they went home for lunch. Adam felt very pleased about the morning's work. He'd always known that the world was an interesting place, and his imagination had peopled it with pirates and bandits and spies and astronauts and similar. But he'd also had a nagging suspicion that, when you seriously got right down to it, they were all just things in books and didn't properly exist anymore. Whereas this aquarium age stuff was really real, Grown-up people wrote lots of books about it, New Aquarian was full of adverts for them, and Bigfoots and Mothmen and Yetis and Sea Monsters and Surrey Pumas really existed. If Cortez, on his peak in Darien, had had slightly damp feet from efforts at catching frogs, he'd have felt just like Adam at that moment. The world was bright and strange, and he was in the middle of it. He bolted his lunch and retired to his room. There were still quite a few New Aquarians he hadn't read yet. The cocoa was a congealed brown sludge half-filling the cup. Certain people had spent hundreds of years trying to make sense of the prophecies of Agnes Nutter. They had been very intelligent in the main. Anathema Device, who was about as close to being Agnes as genetic drift would allow, was the best of the bunch. But none of them had been angels. Many people, meeting Aziraphale for the first time, formed three impressions. That he was English, that he was intelligent, and that he was gayer than a tree full of monkeys on nitrous oxide. Two of these were wrong. Heaven is not in England, whatever certain poets may have thought, and angels are sexless unless they really want to make an effort. But he was intelligent, and it was an angelic intelligence which, while not being particularly higher than human intelligence, is much broader and has the advantage of having thousands of years of practice. Aziraphale was the first angel ever to own a computer. It was a cheap, slow, plasticky one, much touted as ideal for the small businessman. Aziraphale used it religiously for doing his accounts, which were so scrupulously accurate that the tax authorities had inspected him five times in the deep belief that he was getting away with murder somewhere. But these other calculations were of a kind no computer could ever do. Sometimes he would scribble something on a sheet of paper by his side. It was covered in symbols which only eight other people in the world would have been able to comprehend. Two of them had won Nobel Prizes, and one of the other five dribbled a lot and wasn't allowed anything sharp because of what he might do with it. Anathema lunched on miso soup and poured over her maps. There was no doubt the area around Tadfield was rich in ley lines. Even the famous Alfred Watkins had identified some. But unless she was totally wrong, they were beginning to shift position. She'd spent the week taking soundings with theodolite and pendulum, and the ordnance survey map of the Tadfield area was now covered with little dots and arrows. 
She stared at them for some time. Then she picked up a felt-tip pen and, with occasional references to her notebook, began to join them up. The radio was on. She wasn't really listening, so quite a lot of the main news item passed right by her unheeding ears, and it wasn't until a couple of key words filtered down into her consciousness that she began to take notice. Someone called a spokesman sounded close to hysteria. Danger to employees or the public, he was saying. And precisely how much nuclear material has escaped, said the interviewer. There was a pause. We wouldn't say escaped, said the spokesman. Not escaped. Temporarily mislaid. You mean it is still on the premises? We certainly cannot see how it could have been removed from them, said the spokesman. Surely you have considered terrorist activity. There was another pause. Then the spokesman said, in the quiet tones of someone who has had enough and is going to quit after this and raise chickens somewhere, Yes, I suppose we must. All we need to do is find some terrorists who are capable of taking an entire nuclear reactor out of its can while it's running and without anyone noticing. It weighs about a thousand tons and is forty feet high. So they'll be quite strong terrorists. Perhaps you'd like to ring them up, sir, and ask them questions in that supercilious accusatory way of yours. But you said the power station is still producing electricity, gasped the interviewer. It is. How can it still be doing that if it hasn't got any reactors? You could see the spokesman's mad grin, even on the radio. You could see his pen poised over the farms for sale column in Poultry World. We don't know, he said. We were hoping you clever buggers at the BBC would have an idea. Anathema looked down at her map. What she had been drawing looked like a galaxy, or the type of carving seen on the better class of Celtic monolith. The ley lines were shifting. They were forming a spiral. It was centred, loosely, with some margin for error, but nevertheless centred, on Lower Tadfield. Several thousand miles away, at almost the same moment as Anathema was staring at her spirals, the pleasure cruiser Morbilly was aground in 300 fathoms of water. For Captain Vincent, this was just another problem. For example, he knew he should contact the owners, but he never knew from day to day, or from hour to hour in this computerized world, actually who the current owners were. Computers, that was the bloody trouble. The ship's papers were computerized, and it could switch to the most currently advantageous flag of convenience in microseconds. Its navigation had been computerized as well, constantly updating its position by satellites. Captain Vincent had explained patiently to the owners, whoever they were, that several hundred square meters of steel plating and a barrel of rivets would be a better investment, and had been informed that his recommendation did not accord with current cost-benefit flow predictions. Captain Vincent strongly suspected that, despite all its electronics, the ship was worth more sunk than afloat, and would probably go down as the most perfectly pinpointed wreck in nautical history. By inference, this also meant that he was more valuable dead than alive. He sat at his desk, quietly leafing through international maritime codes, whose 600 pages contained brief yet pregnant messages designed to transmit the news of every conceivable nautical eventuality across the world with the minimum of confusion and, above all, cost. What he wanted to say was this. Was sailing south-southwest at position 33 degrees north, 47 degrees 72 minutes west. 
First mate, who you may recall was appointed in New Guinea against my wishes and is probably a headhunter, indicated by signs that something was amiss. It appears that quite a vast expanse of seabed has risen up in the night. It contains a large number of buildings, many of which appeared pyramid-like in structure. We are aground in the courtyard of one of these. There are some rather unpleasant statues. Amiable old men in long robes and diving helmets have come aboard the ship and are mingling happily with the passengers who think we organized this. Please advise. His questing finger moved slowly down the page and stopped. Good old international codes. They'd been devised 80 years before, but the men in those days had really thought hard about the kind of perils that might possibly be encountered on the deep. He picked up his pen and wrote down XXXV... QVVX. Translated, it meant, Have found lost continent of Atlantis. High Priest has just won quoits contest. It jolly well isn't. It jolly well is. It isn't, you know. It jolly well is. It isn't. All right, then, what about volcanoes? Winsleydale sat back, a look of triumph on his face. What about him? said Adam. All that lava comes up from the centre of the earth where it's all hot, said Wensleydale. I saw a programme. It had David Attenborough, so it's true. The other them looked at Adam. It was like watching a tennis match. The hollow earth theory was not going over well in the quarry. A beguiling idea that had stood up to the probings of such remarkable thinkers as Cyrus Reed Teed, Bulwer Lytton, and Adolf Hitler was bending dangerously in the wind of Wensleydale's searingly bespectacled logic. I didn't say it was hollow all the way through, said Adam. No one said it was hollow all the way through. It probably goes down miles and miles to make room for all the lather and oil and coal and Tibetan tunnels and such like. But then it's hollow after that. That's what people think. And there's a hole at the North Pole to let the air in. Never seen it on an atlas, sniffed Wensleydale. The government won't let them put it on a map in case people go and have a look in, said Adam. The reason being, the people living inside don't want people looking down on them all the time. What do you mean Tibetan tunnels, said Pepper? You said Tibetan tunnels. Ah, didn't I tell you about them? Three heads shook. It's amazing. You know Tibet? They nodded doubtfully. A series of images had risen in their mind. Yaks, Mount Everest, people called Grasshopper, little old men sitting on mountains, other people learning Kung Fu in ancient temples, and snow. Well, you know all those teachers that left Atlantis when it sunk? They nodded again. Well, some of them went to Tibet and now they run the world. They're called the Secret Masters, on account of being teachers, I suppose. And they've got this secret underground city called Shambhala, and tunnels that go all over the world so they know everything that goes on and control everything. Some people reckon that they really live under the Gobi Desert, he added loftily, but most competent authorities reckon it's to bed all right. Better for the tunneling, anyway. The them instinctively looked down at the grubby, dirt-covered chalk beneath their feet. How come they know everything? said Pepper. They just have to listen, right? hazarded Adam. They just have to sit in their tunnels and listen. You know what hearing teachers have. They can hear a whisper right across the room. My granny used to put a glass against the wall, said Brian. She said it was disgusting the way she could hear everything that went on next door. And these tunnels go everywhere, do they? said Pepper, still staring at the ground. All over the world, said Adam firmly. Must have took a long time, said Pepper doubtfully. You remember when we tried digging that tunnel out in the field, we were at it all afternoon and you had to scrunch up to get all in. Yes, but they've been doing it for millions of years. You can do really good tunnels if you've got millions of years. 
I thought the Tibetans were conquered by the Chinese and the Dalai Lama had to go to India, said Wensleydale, but without much conviction. Wensleydale read his father's newspaper every evening, but the prosaic everydayness of the world always seemed to melt under the powerhouse of Adam's explanations. I bet they're down there now, said Adam, ignoring this. They'd be all over the place by now, sitting underground and listening. They looked at one another. If we dug down quickly, said Brian, Pepper, who was a lot quicker on the uptake, groaned. What do you have to go and say that for, said Adam? Fat load of good us trying to surprise them now, isn't it, with you shouting out something like that? I was just thinking we could dig down and you just have to go and warn them. I don't think they dig all those tunnels, said Wensleydale doggedly. It doesn't make any sense. Tibet's hundreds of miles away. Oh yes, oh yes, and I suppose you know more about it than Madame Latvadatatsky, sniffed Adam. Now, if I was a Tibetan, said Wensleydale, in a reasonable tone of voice, I'd just stick straight down to the hollow bit in the middle and then run around the inside and dig straight up where I wanted to be. They gave this due consideration. You've got to admit that's more sensible than tunnels, said Pepper. Yes, well, I expect that's what they do, said Adam. They'd be bound to have thought of something as simple as that. Brian stared dreamily at the sky while his finger probed the contents of one ear. Funny, really, he said. You spend your whole life going to school and learning stuff, and they never tell you about stuff like the Bermuda Triangle and UFOs and all these old masters running around the inside of the Earth. Why do we have to learn boring stuff when there's all this brilliant stuff we could be learning? That's what I want to know. There was a chorus of agreement. Then they went out and played Charles Fort and the Atlanteans versus the ancient masters of Tibet, but the Tibetans claimed that using mystic ancient lasers was cheating. There was a time when witchfinders were respected, although it didn't last very long. Matthew Hopkins, for example, the witchfinder general, found witches all over the east of England in the middle of the 17th century, charging each town and village ninepence a witch for every one he discovered. That was the trouble. Witchfinders didn't get paid by the hour. Any witchfinder who spent a week examining the local crones and then told the mayor, well done, not a pointy hat among the lot of them, would get fulsome thanks, a bowl of soup, and a meaningful goodbye. So, in order to turn a profit, Hopkins had to find a remarkable number of witches. This made him more than a little unpopular with the village councils, and he was himself hanged as a witch by an East Anglian village who had sensibly realized that they could cut their overheads by eliminating the middleman. It is thought by many that Hopkins was the last witchfinder general. In this, they would, strictly speaking, be correct. Possibly not in the way they imagine, however. The Witchfinder army marched on, just slightly more quietly. There is no longer a real Witchfinder general. Nor is there a Witchfinder colonel, a Witchfinder major, a Witchfinder captain, or even a Witchfinder lieutenant. The last one was killed falling out of a very tall tree in Caterham in 1933, while attempting to get a better view of something he believed was a satanic orgy of the most degenerate persuasion, but was, in fact, the Caterham and Whiteleaf Market Traders Association annual dinner and dance. There is, however, a Witchfinder sergeant. There is also now a Witchfinder private. His name is Newton Pulsifer. It was the advertisement that got him, in the Gazette, between a fridge for sale and a litter of not-exactly Dalmatians. Join the professionals. Part-time assistant required to combat the forces of darkness. Uniform, basic training provided. 
Field promotion certain. Be a man. In his lunch hour, he phoned the number at the bottom of the ad. A woman answered. Hello, he began tentatively. I saw your advert. Which one, love? Uh, the one in the paper. Right, love. Well, Madam Tracy draws aside the veil every afternoon except Thursdays. Parties welcome. When, we, when would you be wanting to explore the mysteries, love? Newton hesitated. The advert says join the professionals, he said. It didn't mention Madam Tracy. That'll be Mr. Shadwell you'll be wanting then. Just a sec, I'll see if he's in. Later, when he was on nodding terms with Madame Tracy, Newt learned that if he had mentioned the other ad, the one in the magazine, Madame Tracy would have been available for strict discipline and intimate massage every evening except Thursday. There was yet another ad in a phone box somewhere. When, much later, Newt asked her what this one involved, she said Thursdays. Eventually, there was the sound of feet in uncarpeted hallways, a deep coughing, and a voice the colour of an old raincoat rumbled. I. I read your advert. Join the professionals. I wanted to know a bit more about it. I. There's many as would like to know more about it, and there's many. The voice trailed off impressively, then crashed back to full volume. There's many as wouldn't. Oh, squeaked Newton. What's your name, lad? Newton. Newton Pulsifer. Lucifer? What's that you say? Are you the spawn of darkness, a tempting, beguiling creature from the pit, wanton limbs steaming from the flesh pots of Hades in tortured and lubricious thrall to your Stygian and hellish masters? Uh, that's Pulsifer, explained Newton, with a P. I don't know about the other stuff, but we come from Surrey. The voice on the phone sounded vaguely disappointed. Oh, aye. Well then, Pulsifer. Pulsifer. I've seen that name afford, maybe. I don't know, said Newton. My uncle runs a toy shop in Hounslow, he added, in case this was any help. Is that so? said Shadwell. Mr. Shadwell's accent was unplaceable. It careered around Britain like a milk race. Here, a mad Welsh drill sergeant. There, a Highkirk elder who'd just seen someone doing something on a Sunday. Somewhere between them, a dour Daleland shepherd or bitter Somerset miser. It didn't matter where the accent went, it didn't get any nicer. Have you all your own teeth? Oh yes, except for fillings. Are you fit? I suppose so, Newt stuttered. I, I mean, that was why I wanted to join the Territorials. Brian Potter in accounting can bench press almost a hundred since he joined, and he paraded in front of the Queen Mother. How many nipples? Pardon? Nipples, laddie, nipples, said the voice testily. How many nipples have you got? Uh, two? Good. Have you got your own scissors? What? Scissors! Scissors! Are you deaf? No, yes, I mean, I've got some scissors. I'm not deaf. The cocoa had nearly all solidified. Green fur was growing on the inside of the mug. There was a thin layer of dust on Aziraphale, too. The stack of notes was building up beside him. The nice and accurate prophecies was a mass of improvised bookmarks made from torn strips of the Daily Telegraph. Aziraphale stirred and pinched his nose. He was nearly there. He'd got the shape of it. He'd never met Agnes. 
She was too bright, obviously. Normally, heaven or hell spotted the prophetic types and broadcast enough noises on the same mental channel to prevent any undue accuracy. Actually, that was rarely necessary. They normally found ways of generating their own static and self-defense against the images that echoed around their heads. Poor old St. John had his mushrooms, for example. Mother Shipton had her ale. Nostradamus had his collection of interesting oriental preparations. St. Malachy had his still. Good old Malachy. He'd been a nice old boy, sitting there, dreaming about future popes. Complete piss artist, of course. Could have been a real thinker if it hadn't been for the patine. A sad end. Sometimes you really had to hope that the ineffable plan had been properly thought out. Thought. There was something he had to do. Oh yes, phone his contact, get things sorted out. He stood up, stretched his limbs, and made a phone call. Then he thought, why not? Worth a try. He went back and shuffled through his sheaf of notes. Agnes really had been good, and clever. No one was interested in accurate prophecies. Paper in hand, he phoned directory inquiries. Hello? Good afternoon. So kind. Yes, this will be a Tadfield number, I think. Or lower Tadfield. Ah, or possibly Norton. I'm not sure of the precise code. Yes, Young. Name of Young. Sorry, no initial. Oh. Well, can you give me all of them? Thank you. Back on the table, a pencil picked itself up and scribbled furiously. At the third name, it broke its point. Ah, said Aziraphale, his mouth suddenly running on automatic while his mind exploded. I think that's the one. Thank you. So kind. Good day to you. He hung up almost reverentially, took a few deep breaths, and dialed again. The last three digits gave him some trouble, because his hand was shaking. He listened to the ringing tone. Then a voice answered. It was a middle-aged voice, not unfriendly, but probably it had been having a nap and was not feeling at its best. It said, Tadfield 666. Aziraphale's hand started to shake. Hello? said the receiver. Hello? Aziraphale got a grip on himself. Sorry, he said. Right number. He replaced the receiver. Newt wasn't deaf, and he did have his own scissors. He also had a huge pile of newspapers. If he had known that army life consisted chiefly of applying the one to the other, he used to muse, he would never have joined. Witchfinder Sergeant Shadwell had made him a list, which was taped to the wall in Shadwell's tiny crowded flat situated over Rajit's newsagents and video rental. The list read, 1. Witches. 2. Unexplainable phenomenons. Phenomenatrices. Phenomenice. Things ye ken well what I mean. Newt was looking for either. He sighed and picked up another newspaper, scanned the front page, opened it, ignored page two, never anything on there, then blushed crimson as he performed the obligatory nipple count on page three. Shadwell had been insistent about this. You can't trust them, the cunning buggers, he said. It'd be just like them to come right out of the open like, defying us. A couple in black turtleneck sweaters glowered at the camera on page nine. They claimed to lead the largest coven in Saffron Walden and to restore sexual potency by the use of small and very phallic dolls. The newspaper was offering ten of the dolls to readers who were prepared to write my most embarrassing moment of impotency stories. 
Newt cut the story out and stuck it into a scrapbook. There was a muffled thumping on the door. Newt opened it. A pile of newspapers stood there. Shift yourself, Private Pulsifer, it barked, and it shuffled into the room. The newspapers fell to the floor, revealing Witchfinder Sergeant Shadwell, who coughed painfully and relit his cigarette, which had gone out. You want to watch him. He's one of them, he said. Who, sir? Takuri's private. Him, that little brown fella, Mr. So-called Rajit. It's them terrible fornarts. The ruby squinty eye of the little yellow god. Women with too many arms. Witches, the lot of them. He does give us the newspapers free, though, Sergeant, said Newt. And they're not too old. And voodoo. I bet he does voodoo. Sacrificing chickens to that barren Saturday. You know, tall darky bugger in the top hat. Brings people back from the dead eye and makes them work on the Sabbath day. Voodoo. Shadwell sniffed speculatively. Newt tried to picture Shadwell's landlord as an exponent of voodoo. Certainly, Mr. Rajit worked on the Sabbath. In fact, with his plump, quiet wife and plump, cheerful children, he worked around the clock, never mind the calendar, diligently filling the area's needs in the matter of soft drinks, white bread, tobacco, sweets, newspapers, magazines, and the type of top-shelf pornography that made Newt's eyes water just to think about. The worst you could imagine Mr. Rajit doing with a chicken was selling it after the sell-by date. But Mr. Rajit's from Bangladesh or India or somewhere, he said. I thought voodoo came from the West Indies. Ah, said Witchfinder Sergeant Shadwell and took another drag on his cigarette. Or appeared to. Newt had never actually quite seen one of his superior's cigarettes. It was something to do with the way he cupped his hands. He even made the ends disappear when he'd finished with them. Ah, well, doesn't it? Hidden wisdom, lad. Inner military secrets of the Witchfinder army. When you're all initiated proper, you'll know the secret truth. Some voodoo may come from the West Indies. I'll grant you that. Oh yes, I'll grant you that. But the worst kind, the darkest kind, that comes from... Um... Bangladesh? Ugh. Yes, lad, that's it. Words right out of my mouth. Bangladesh. Exactly. Shadwell made the end of his cigarette vanish and managed furtively to roll another, never letting papers or tobacco be seen. So, you got anything which find a private? Well, there's this. Newt held out the clipping. Shadwell squinted at it. Oh, them, he said. Load of rubbish. Called themselves bloody witches. I checked them out last year. Went down with me armory of righteousness and a packet of firelighters, jemmied the place open, they were clean as a whistle. Mail order bee jelly business they're trying to pep up. Load of rubbish. Wouldn't know a familiar spirit if it chewed out the bottoms of their trousers. Rubbish. It's not like it used to be, laddie. He sat down and poured himself a cup of sweet tea from a filthy thermos. Did I ever tell you how I was recruited to the army? he asked. Newt took this as his cue to sit down. He shook his head. Shadwell lit his roll up with a battered Ronson lighter and coughed appreciatively. My cellmate he was. Which finder Captain Fawkes. Ten years for arson, burning a coffin in Wimbledon. Would have got them all too if it wasn't the wrong day. Good fellow. Told me about the battle, the great war between heaven and hell. It was him that told me the inner secrets of the Witchfinder army. Familiar spirits, nipples, all that. Knew he was dying, you see. Got to have someone to carry on the tradition. Like you is now. He shook his head. That's what we were reduced to, lad, he said. 
A few hundred years ago, see, we was powerful. We stood between the world and the darkness. We was the thin red line. Thin red line of fire, you see. I thought the churches, Newt began. Pah, said Shadwell. Newt had seen the word in print, but this was the first time he'd ever heard anyone say it. Churches, what good did they ever do? Them just as bad. Same line of business, nearly. You can't trust them to stamp out the evil one, because if they did, they'd be out of that line of business. If you're going up against a tiger, you don't want fellow travellers whose idea of hunting is to throw meat at it. Nay, lad, it's up to us against the darkness. Everything went quiet for a moment. Newt always tried to see the best in everyone, but it had occurred to him shortly after joining the W.A. that his superior and only fellow soldier was as well-balanced as an upturned pyramid. Shortly, in this case, meant under five seconds. The W.A.'s headquarters was a fetid room with walls the colour of nicotine, which was almost certainly what they were coated with, and a floor the colour of cigarette ash, which was almost certainly what it was. There was a small square of carpet... Newt avoided walking on it if possible because it sucked at his shoes. One of the walls had a yellowing map of the British Isles tacked to it, with homemade flags sticking in it here and there. Most of them were within a cheap day-return fare of London. But Newt had stuck with it the past few weeks because, well, horrified fascination had turned into horrified pity, and then a sort of horrified affection— Shadwell had turned out to be about five feet high, and wore clothes which, no matter what they actually were, always turned up, even in your short-term memory, as an old Macintosh. The old man may have had all his own teeth, but only because no one else could possibly have wanted them. Just one of them placed under the pillow would have made the tooth fairy hand in its wand. He appeared to live entirely on sweet tea, condensed milk, hand-rolled cigarettes, and a sort of sullen internal energy. Shadwell had a cause, which he followed with the full resources of his soul and his pensioner's concessionary travel pass. He believed in it. It powered him like a turbine. Newton Pulsifer had never had a cause in his life. Nor had he, as far as he knew, ever believed in anything. It had been embarrassing because he quite wanted to believe in something, since he recognised that belief was the life belt that got most people through the choppy waters of life. He'd have liked to believe in a supreme god, although he'd have preferred a half-hour's chat with him before committing himself to clear up one or two points. He'd sat in all sorts of churches, waiting for that single flash of blue light, and it hadn't come. And then he'd tried to become an official atheist, and hadn't got the rock-hard, self-satisfied strength of belief even for that. And every single political party had seemed to him equally dishonest. And he'd given up on ecology when the ecology magazine he'd been subscribing to had shown its readers a plan of a self-sufficient garden and had drawn the ecological goat tethered within three feet of the ecological beehive. Newt had spent a lot of time at his grandmother's house in the country and thought he knew something about the habits of both goats and bees and concluded, therefore, that the magazine was run by a bunch of bib-over-old maniacs. Besides, it used the word community too often. Newt had always suspected that people who regularly used the word community were using it in a very specific sense that excluded him and everyone he knew. Then he'd tried believing in the universe, which seemed sound enough until he'd innocently started reading new books with words like chaos and time and quantum in the titles. 
he'd found that even the people whose job of work was, so to speak, the universe, didn't really believe in it and were actually quite proud of not knowing what it really was or even if it could theoretically exist. To Newt's straightforward mind, this was intolerable. Newt had not believed in the Cub Scouts, and then, when he was old enough, not in the Scouts either. He was prepared to believe, though, that the job of wages clerk at United Holdings, Holdings PLC, was possibly the most boring in the world. This is how Newton Pulsifer looked as a man. If he went into a phone booth and changed, he might manage to come out looking like Clark Kent. But he found he rather liked Shadwell. People often did, much to Shadwell's annoyance. The Rajits liked him because he always eventually paid his rent and didn't cause any trouble, and was racist in such a glowering, undirected way that it was quite inoffensive. It was simply that Shadwell hated everyone in the world, regardless of caste, color, or creed, and wasn't going to make any exceptions for anyone. Madame Tracy liked him. Newt had been amazed to find that the tenant of the other flat was a middle-aged motherly soul, whose gentleman callers called as much for a cup of tea and a nice chat as for what little discipline she was still able to exact. Sometimes, when he'd nursed a half-pint of Guinness on a Saturday night, Shadwell would stand in the corridor between their rooms and shout things like, Whore of Babylon! But she told Newt privately that she'd always felt rather gratified about this, even though the closest she'd been to Babylon was Torremolinos. It was like free advertising, she said. She said she didn't mind him banging on the wall and swearing during her seance afternoons either. Her knees had been giving her jip, and she wasn't always up to operating the table wrapper, she said, so a bit of muffled thumping came in useful. On Sundays, she'd leave him a bit of dinner on his doorstep, with another plate over the top of it to keep it warm. You couldn't help liking Shadwell, she said. For all the good it did, though, she might as well be flicking bread pellets into a black hole. Newt remembered the other cuttings. He pushed them across the stained desk. "'What are these?' said Shadwell suspiciously. "'Phenomena,' said Newt. "'You said to look for phenomena. "'There's more phenomena than witches these days, I'm afraid.' "'Anyone been shooting hares with a silver bullet "'and next day an old crone in the village is walking with a limp?' "'Shadwell said hopefully. "'I'm afraid not. "'Any cows dropping dead after some woman has looked at them? "'No.' "'What is it then?' said Shadwell. He shuffled across to the sticky brown cupboard and pulled out a tin of condensed milk. Odd things happening, said Newt. He'd spent weeks on this. Shadwell had really let the papers pile up. Some of them went back for years. Newt had quite a good memory, perhaps because in his twenty-three years very little had happened to fill it up, and he had become quite expert on some very esoteric subjects. Seems to be something new every day, said Newt, flicking through the rectangles of newsprint. Something weird has been happening to nuclear power stations, and no one seems to know what it is. And some people are claiming that the lost continent of Atlantis has risen. He looked proud of his efforts. Shadwell's penknife punctured the condensed milk tin. There was the distant sound of a telephone ringing. Both men instinctively ignored it. All the calls were for Madame Tracy anyway, and some of them were not intended for the ear of man. Newt had conscientiously answered the phone on his first day, listened carefully to the question, said... Marks and Spencer's 100% cotton Y-fronts, actually, and had been left with a dead receiver. Shadwell sucked deeply. Ah, that's not proper phenomena, he said. Can't see any witches doing that. They're more for the sink of the things you can. Newt's mouth opened and shut a few times. 
If we're strong in the fight against witchery, we can't afford to be sidetracked by this style of thing, Shadwell went on. Haven't you got anything more witchcrafty? But American troops have landed on it to protect it from things, moaned Newt. A non-existent continent. Any witches on it, said Shadwell, showing a spark of interest for the first time. It doesn't say, said Newt. Ah, then it's just politics and geography, said Shadwell dismissively. Madame Tracy poked her head around the door. Cooey, Mr. Shadwell, she said, giving Newt a friendly little wave. A gentleman on the telephone for you. Hello, Mr. Newton. Away we you, harlot, said Shadwell automatically. He sounds ever so refined, said Madame Tracy, taking no notice. And I'll be getting us a nice bit of liver for Sunday. I'd sooner sup with the Dell woman. So if you'd let me have the plates back from last week, it'd be a help. There's a laugh, said Madame Tracy, and tottered unsteadily back on three-inch heels to her flat and whatever it was that had been interrupted. Newt looked despondently at his cuttings as Shadwell went out, grumbling to the phone. There was one about the stones of Stonehenge moving out of position, as though they were iron filings in a magnetic field. He was vaguely aware of one side of a telephone conversation. Who? Ah, I, I. You say? What class of thing would that be? Aye, just as you say, sir. And where is this place, then? But mysteriously moving stones wasn't Shadwell's cup of tea, or rather, tin of milk. Fine, fine, Shadwell reassured the caller. We'll get on to it right away. I'll put my best squad on it and report success to you any minute, I had no doubt. Goodbye to you, sir. And bless you too, sir. There was the ting of a receiver going back on the hook, and then Shadwell's voice, no longer metaphorically crouched in deference, said, Dear boy, you great southern pansy. Footnote. Shadwell hated all southerners, and, by inference, was standing at the North Pole. He shuffled back into the room, and then stared at Newt as if he had forgotten why he was there. What was it you was going on about? he said. All these things that are happening, Newt began. I... Shadwell continued to look through him while thoughtfully tapping the empty tin against his teeth. Well, there's this little town which has been having some amazing weather for the last few years, Newt went on helplessly. What? Raining frogs and similar, said Shadwell, brightening up a bit. No, it just has normal weather for the time of year. Call that a phenomena, said Shadwell. I've seen phenomenas that'd make your hair curl, laddie. He started tapping again. When do you remember normal weather for the time of year, said Newt, slightly annoyed. Normal weather for the time of year isn't normal, Sergeant. It has snow at Christmas. When did you last see snow at Christmas? And long, hot Augusts, every year, and crisp autumns, the kind of weather you used to dream of as a kid. It never rained on November the 5th and always snowed on Christmas Eve. Shadwell's eyes looked unfocused. He paused with the condensed milk tin halfway to his lips. I never used to dream when I was a kid, he said quietly. Newt was aware of skidding around the lip of some deep, unpleasant pit. He mentally backed away. It's just very odd, he said. There's a weatherman here talking about averages and norms and microclimates and things like that. What's that mean? said Shadwell. Means he doesn't know why, said Newt, who hadn't spent years on the literal of business without picking up a thing or two. He looked sidelong at the witchfinder sergeant. Witches are well known for affecting the weather, he prompted. I looked it up in the discovery. Oh, God, he thought, or other suitable entity. Don't let me spend another evening cutting newspapers to bits in this ashtray of a room. Let me get out in the fresh air. Let me do whatever is the WA's equivalent of going water skiing in Germany. 
It's only 40 miles away, he said tentatively. I thought I could just sort of nip over there tomorrow and have a look around, you know? I'll pay my own petrol, he added. Shadwell wiped his upper lip thoughtfully. This place, he said. It wouldn't have be called Tadfield, would it? That's right, Mr. Shadwell, said Newt. How did you know that? Wonder what the southerners is playing at new, said Shadwell under his breath. Well, he said out loud, and why not? Who'll be playing, Sergeant, said Newt. Shadwell ignored him. Aye, I suppose it can't do any harm. You'll pay your own petrol, you say? Newt nodded. Then you'll come here at nine o'clock in the morning, he said, afore you go. What for, said Newt? Your armour of righteousness. Just after Newt had left, the phone rang again. This time it was Crowley, who gave approximately the same instructions as Aziraphale. Shadwell took them down again for form's sake, while Madame Tracy hovered delightedly behind him. Two calls in one day, Mr. Shadwell, she said. Your little army must be marching away like anything. Ah, where were ye, you murrin-plushed berizen, muttered Shadwell, and slammed the door. Tadfield, he thought. Ah, well, so long as they paid up on time. Neither Aziraphale nor Crowley ran the Witchfinder army, but they both approved of it, or at least knew that it would be approved of by their superiors. So it appeared on the list of Aziraphale's agencies because it was, well, a Witchfinder army, and you had to support anyone calling themselves Witchfinders in the same way that the USA had to support anyone calling themselves anti-communist. And it appeared on Crowley's list for the slightly more sophisticated reason that people like Shadwell did the cause of hell no harm at all. Quite the reverse, it was felt. Strictly speaking, Shadwell didn't run the WA either. According to Shadwell's pay ledgers, it was run by Witchfinder General Smith. Under him were Witchfinder Colonels Green and Jones, and Witchfinder Majors Jackson, Robinson, and Smith. No relation. Then there were Witchfinder Majors Saucepan, Tin, Milk, and Cupboard, because Shadwell's limited imagination had been beginning to struggle at this point and Witchfinder Captains Smith, 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 and Smythe, and Ditto, and 500 Witchfinder Privates and Corporals and Sergeants. Many of them were called Smith, but this didn't matter because neither Crowley nor Aziraphale had ever bothered to read that far. They simply handed over the pay. After all, both lots put together only came to around £60 a year. Shadwell didn't consider this in any way criminal. The army was a sacred trust, and a man had to do something. The old ninepences weren't coming in like they used to.